Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are in chapter 14 of book one of John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. And today we're going to talk about uh, creation and angels in chapter 14 of Calvin's Institutes. Uh, it opens up with God's kind of fatherly care of creation, and there's a really kind of wonderful passage here that Ian's going to read about contemplating God's fatherly love towards us. So, you know, if you could kind of start by reading that passage, maybe we could talk about it a bit and kind of move through the rest of the chapter afterwards. Yeah, sure. Yeah, this whole chapter, chapter 14, is really interesting and weird in a way. You know, he he's going to start off by talking about what creation is, uh, how to have a kind of a right knowledge of God through creation, and then explain all these kind of like erroneous ways. He's going to get into strange views of angels and all kinds of cool stuff. And, uh, and so knowing that we could kind of potentially in a podcast like this kind of get off on some weird tangents, I thought it would be good to just start off in a kind of grounded way, just by looking at how, you know, God, God created the universe for our use and for our, our good, you know, his, for his, his an expression of his goodness towards humans. And so I thought I'd just read, uh, if you're using the two volume McNeil battles, it's right on the bottom of page 161. It's chapter 14 uh, and section two. And again, this is just about God's fatherly care for us. Um, so Calvin says, but we ought in the very order of things diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love toward mankind in that he did not create Adam until he lavished upon the universe all manner of good things. For if he had put him in an earth as yet sterile and empty, if he had given him life before light, he would have seemed to provide insufficiently for his welfare. Now, when he disposed the movement of the sun and stars to human uses, filled the earth, waters, and air with living things, and brought forth an abundance of fruits to suffice as goods, and thus assuming the responsibility of a foreseeing and diligent father of the family, he shows his wonderful goodness to us. If anyone should more attentively ponder what I only briefly touched upon, it will be clear that Moses is a sure witness and herald of the one God, the Creator, I pass over what I have already explained, that he there not only speaks of the bare essence of God, but also sets forth for us his eternal wisdom and spirit, that we may not conjure up some other God than him who would himself recognize in that clear image. So he's saying we need to have a true knowledge of God. Here he's using language that seems to me to have a kind of Trinitarian overtone, right? We, we know God as creator, but also wisdom, which seems to correspond uh, to the logos or to the sun and to the spirit. So we, through creation, want to get at a true Trinitarian knowledge of God, uh, not following the idolaters. And uh, to, get, to get at that love, we will soon discover that the, the creation not only points us to the nature of this kind of God, but God who he is for us, right? This fatherly care that he has for mankind. And it's really neat the way he kind of like, you know, expresses that with, you know, the creation of Adam. You know, he said, look, I've, God, God makes the universe and the earth perfect so that when Adam shows up on the sixth day of creation, everything is there for Adam's good and for his enjoyment so that he could then really and truly know God. And, uh, and so that, that's it's just a great marker of God's, God's care for us. Yeah, and I think if I remember in the last chapter, he explicitly identifies wisdom with the second person of the Trinity. Yeah. I was trying to check back where that was, but I'm pretty sure he does that. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a Trinitarian kind of creation that's there. Here, here's something I find fascinating. It's kind of an older idea of, um, you know, I call it the Thea, it's order, sequence. And you see this in their earliest writers of Christianity when they're looking at creation, that the order of nature 
corresponds to the order of scripture. And it's interesting that Calvin does the exact same thing here. He's not just saying there's a literary order, which is very interesting in Genesis 1. He's saying, in fact, the order of what actually happens in nature, the order in which it's presented, is for the sake of man, for humanity. Because all these things were furnished and prepared for his sake. And I think that's important. I suspect we've lost that a little bit in our kind of theological talk. We're very attuned to the literary character of scripture, but sometimes we, we accidentally divorce that through the, um, what's happening in true in nature that scripture corresponds to. I know that sounds abstract, but I think it's important when you're reading Genesis 1, you're actually thinking about how the world truly works. You're not thinking yeah. about what the text truly communicates only. It's the text is true and it corresponds to what's true about the world as well. It's both yeah. Yeah, we, we, I think we do this all the time, even within scripture and the canon itself too, right? Like uh, how many, how many preachers will go and preach on Jonah um, without any kind of like idea that there's an orderliness, even to where Jonah is placed, say within the book of the 12 of the minor prophets and how the minor prophets themselves will inform what Jonah has to tell us or how we'll do that with the gospels. We'll kind of just obliterate, you know, in in desiring to harmonize the gospels you know, we'll preach on Matthew, but spend most of our time in Luke. And we're like, well, but we're not understanding the way the scripture is actually set up in a particular canonical order for our understanding. So, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, and, and sequence, I mean, you're, you're right about thematic sequence. I mean, I think even uh, Exodus 19 through 34, the Sinai yeah. narrative, uh, if you read that sequence as strictly chronological, it's really tough. But most, I mean, in history, people have not read it strictly chronologically, but actually as a thematic sequence. Yeah. I don't know the actual number of people, but uh, it's, it's relatively common to do that. And if you do that, it makes a lot better sense because Moses goes up and down so many times in that narrative. If you're trying to count them up, uh, yeah. you know, it's not as simple as it sounds. In fact, it makes very good sense to see those as overlapping narratives that um, show two different angles of uh, whatever the theme they're trying to highlight is. Okay. So I think that's really cool. Another thing that Kelvin moves into, which I find helpful, is this idea of where our minds should go when we read scripture. Because yeah. it should go up, for sure. But we need to concentrate on things that have value for edification. Uh, and we should renounce things that are unprofitable. He doesn't cite it, I don't think, but I'm sure Second Timothy uh, 3.16 is in the background. You know, scripture is inspired for our, for our benefit, 3.15-16. Um, so I'm curious, uh, he goes into this whole thing, uh, maybe I should just read <clears throat> this one uh, paragraph at the end of section three, begins near the end, it says, therefore, and it ends with the word unprofitable, yep. section three, <clears throat> therefore, in order to meet these perverse falsehoods, it is necessary to lift our minds higher than our eyes can reach. It is probably for this purpose that in the Nicene Creed, where God is called the creator of all things, invisible things are expressly mentioned. Nevertheless, we will take care to keep to the measure which the rule of godliness prescribes, that our readers may not, by speculating more deeply than is expedient, wander away from simplicity of faith. And in fact, while the Spirit ever teaches us to our profit, he ever remains absolutely silent upon those things of little value for edification, or only lightly and Cursorily, cursorily touching on them, touching them, touches them, sorry. It is also our duty willingly to renounce those things which are unprofitable. And he actually continued to talk about this throughout, uh, even the next section on profitable things. And it's a really interesting idea that what God has given us in scripture, 
and he, he means scripture, he is things for our profit, things for our edification. It's not things that are unprofitable or unedifying. And therefore, scripture has like a, scripture's topics themselves help us out, not just for the fact, okay, we get saved. I mean, it's hugely important, but also to align us with things that are uh, part of our salvation, to what is good and profitable and just and holy and good. In fact, he says uh, in the same, in section four, not to take too long, let's remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold to one rule, uh, one rule of modesty and sobriety, not to speak or guess or even to seek to know concerning obscure matters, anything except what has been imparted to us by God's word. Then he goes on to, to explain this is profitable and unprofitable kind of stuff. Yeah. It reminds me so much of Thomas Aquinas' uh, kind of dictum that any Christian dogma must be founded on scripture kind of makes a distinction. Calvin, it seems to say basically the same thing. And a bit more, the, the reason why these dogmas are here is for our benefit, for our profit. And therefore reading uh, is to use an old, in the old sense, the old word therapeutic, not the new yeah. sense. It is for our good, it is for our soul, it is to make us happy, make us good, to know what we should focus on, to align ourselves, to be wise, to make good choices, to equip us for every good work. Uh, to use Paul's language. So I found that ha uh, fascinating because I think sometimes as evangelicals, when we talk about scripture, it's we're trying to prove that it's true, which it is. And then we just stop there. Yeah. It's true. Okay. But that's kind of like the gateway into the Christian faith. It's just a very simple belief. What's actually more uh, expansive and open is the idea that it's, it's beneficial. It's profitable for every good work. And it trains us into righteousness and it defines the topics for us that are at least that are good and worthy to meditate on. So I it makes sense. I mean, if you, if you think about what classic definitions of theology entail, there's always some element of practicality, right? So you'll often hear various uh, theologians in church history say one way or the other that, uh, you know, the definition of theology is right living before God. And so you need to establish what the dogma is in order then to use it. And so it, it seems like that's kind of what Calvin's doing here. It's almost like here, here is this, this revelation and here's what we are to do with it. And, you know, the way he, I think two kind of like really important words that sort of kind of in a way govern this, this whole chapter uh, are uh, the words accommodation and speculation, right? God accommodates himself to our understanding and therefore, we shouldn't speculate about things because we've got to remember that a lot of this thing, a lot of the knowledge that we have through Revelation is God's accommodating himself or accommodating knowledge to us. And so if we start to engage in sort of like idle speculation, we're just going to go off to all sorts of things because we're not supposed to know. And so, it's, yeah, it's this right handling of, of, of the scriptures in order then for them to be truly profitable for us. I think the idea of accommodation is so important. It might be just helpful to kind of reiterate some of the things you're saying uh, calvin frequently already in book one has mentioned accommodation he does here in, in section eight of this chapter and he talks about how uh, spirits certainly they lack a bodily form and yet scripture tells you all about how they look well yeah. why well these are signs they're signifying things that uh specify whatever the reality is and in this case it's the uh um the swiftness of their of the angelic help when we need it that's why they have wings and all this kind of stuff but not that they necessarily literally have wings. In fact, that's an accommodation. I find this throughout Calvin, I, even when he talks about the wrath of God later in, in this, this text we're reading, he'll talk about that as a sign of what's really going on. Um, 
because there's never at any time Kelvin says that the father of God was angry at the son. Uh, this is about the cry. We'll get there. The cry of dereliction. It's just in the back of my head. So accommodation is a massively important category. Uh, it's everywhere in Calvin. It's everywhere in Christian theology. Yeah. Uh, it'll be called maybe different things here and there, but it, it really helps us to read scripture well, because if we read it in a very, um, I don't know what, how to put it, like a very wooden manner, then we'll see, okay, angels are spiritual beings. And then we'll see, okay, but they have wings. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they need wings, right? If they're not corporeal, if they're not part of the sort of, uh, space and time continuum that we exist in because they can be here and there and not there because you know and move in and out of what we understand as space and time so I find that incredibly helpful um, one thing I wanted to mention I think just very briefly but uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I think I'd be guilty of speculation <laughs> I love at the end of section eight um, when he's kind of concluding about angels and I'll just read it here the last uh, two sentences Whatever besides can be sought of both their number and order, the angels that is, let yeah. us hold it among those mysteries whose full revelation is delayed until the last day. Therefore, let us remember not to probe too curiously or talk too confidently. I love, actually, now that I see it again, there's a combination of hope and humility. Yeah. The hope in that uh, the fullness of revelation, the fullness of these mysteries lays ahead of us. There's an exciting life ahead. I mean, Paul's been somewhere for 2,000 years. It's not like he's bored. <laughs> he's pursuing, understanding, growing, whatever that means in his way of life. I don't know exactly. And then on the other side, it's let's not be too confident in what we know because we have a very limited understanding. We still need the spectacles of faith in the Holy Spirit to be able to sort of understand what's going on. Um, I, I just think it's helpful. It opens up a bit of mystery in the Christian faith. I think what makes uh, the future exciting to us because there's more, more to come. You know, John, yeah, I'll, go on. I was gonna say, I often I'll get the question from students, you know, that, uh, you know, what do you, what do you do when you're in heaven? Um, it seems like it's going to be this kind of like weird static place. You know, some even have the idea that we're going to be sitting up on a cloud with angel wings on it. Funnily enough, we're talking about angels now and plucking a harp. And I was like, no, like it's a new heavens and a new earth. And you're just going to continue learning about God. You know, um, where there's just, I guess, a continued revelation of himself in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, where because he's infinite or finite, we'll just go on forever learning about him. And so theology is a task that begins here and then carries with us into eternity, uh, which is really, you know, which makes the task of theology all the more exciting. No, I think that's exactly right. And uh, it's, it's, it's an old idea, too. But um, so Gregory of Ness, I probably bring him up too much. Yeah, he talks never. about... Okay. <laughs> Except when it comes to the weird universalism stuff. <laughs> well, let's, that might be like something we should talk about once, because I think people overread him a little bit, but I, he definitely does tilt that way. Um, yeah. So he talks about the perfection of humanity, not as being immutable like God is, because as, as a, as a creator, creature, you can't quite be immutable like God is, but actually as in the everlasting growth towards perfection, towards God. And therefore, he sees all of whatever reality is forever as this upward movement from one level of glory to another forever and ever. And to make this maybe very concrete, uh, some people have had what I would call like deep spiritual experiences of calm or peace, the feeling of God's love, whatever it is, maybe a conversion or some people when they first learn about the, you know, the, the doctrines of grace have this kind of elevated feeling. I think very practically that whatever that best feeling is is what you're going to feel more and more at every moment 
in this upward ascension into the life of God, whatever it looks like. I think it will be in the new heavens and new earth, as you mentioned. But when we die, immediately we're going to be with the Lord in soul and eventually yeah. with the Lord in body when it's reunited in its, uh, in its uh, incorruptible form. So I, I think that's remarkable. It's exciting. It makes heaven good and, and sweet and wonderful. And I think if you, if you think about that best high feeling and that getting better and better continually, heaven does not feel boring. <laughs> it's no. yeah. over and again and again and again. Um, Ian, uh, do we all have guardian angels? <laughs> I, you know, that could have been my favorite uh, section of this whole thing. Not, not just because, I mean, I love that he's actually addressing it. You know, because in one sense, and I, I get this question too from students, you know, do we have guardian angels? And it seems like on one level, kind of such a cheesy hallmark kind of question. And yet here, Calvin is taking it with seriousness. And, uh, you know, he's got, we're in this whole section here of angelology, study of angels. So, and this is all kind of like part of his, the larger section here of like knowing God as creator. And then he's going to talk about, you know, a right use of creation towards knowing God. And then all of a sudden he just throws angels in here, and, uh, which is really fun because I think, I think what he's doing is he's trying to explain why we, why we shouldn't be overly speculative. And here's a really esoteric uh, topic in scripture that there's, there's data, but there's not a lot. And there's like ample opportunity, therefore, to do tons of speculation. And so one of these questions that just seems to be perennially asked is, do we have guardian angels? And he's modeling here right in the very beginning of section seven, uh, his whole humility, you know, his approach to scripture. He says, you know, but whether individual angels have been assigned to individual believers for their protection, I dare not affirm with confidence. So he seems to allow the, this plausibility of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's going to say, and he's, and he's going to give some reasons, I, I think, why he ultimately kind of goes a little bit against it, I think. I think he's arguing that we actually just have hosts of angels on our side, not just one. But nevertheless, that's still kind of like is under this category that, yeah, there are such things, guardian angels, and gar angels are actually here to physically protect us in as much as they're there as ministering spirits. And, uh, you know, he'll give some examples. You know, he talks about how, well, maybe a challenge would be Peter's released from prison in Acts 12. Mm -hmm. It's his, you know, they, they think that he's, they see his particular angel. Um, but he says, well, that doesn't actually prevent us from understanding that it could have just been any angel, not one specific, specifically, specifically designated to Peter. He might have had one at that moment, but it could have switched out. Um, and so he's, he's kind of like very carefully kind of like trying to get a broad and general view of the nature of like our personal agent, uh, angels. Um, without going beyond speculation, so I think it's I think it's a neat illustration of of these these this approach to scripture that we've been talking about. Yeah, and you know some of the things he admits I think were important because yeah maybe he pushes back on the individual guardian idea, but he affirms uh, that there are angels over children. Yeah, um, I can't remember the, what's the passage in scripture. Okay, Matthew eighteen eighteen ten. He mentions it twice actually. That according to that passage, uh, there are angels over children. Yeah. Uh, P Peter did, in fact, have an angel over him. It might not have been his, his perpetual angel, I think he says. Yeah. But I think that's still important. Uh, there's angels over nations, all that kind of stuff he mentions, too. Um, because I, I think that we probably don't think about angels at all in terms no. of our everyday life. Yeah. Um, but or, I, or we think about it too much in the wrong way. In the wrong way, yeah. 
like how many evangelicals just get into that kind of hallmark sort of like approach Good. to angels without a real understanding of what they're there for. What was the TV show Touched by an Angel, I think? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think there's something there. Um, the, the best analogy or the best way to think about it is um, it's a live shot. When God opens his eyes to the immaterial realm, he sees uh, a host of angels around him. I think the church has that as well. Uh, I mean, Calvin basically admits as much, right? And I think individually, while we don't have maybe a guardian angel like named Tom, God actually ordains angels to watch over us. So whatever that means exactly. uh, I think there is spiritual warfare. I think it's important. I think uh, when we worship on earth, we're corresponding to the heavenly worship of angels in heaven and the saints who are there right now. There's a a chorus across geography, you know, from China to, to, to America. But there's also a chorus across sort of the time and space gap that whatever heaven is exactly, we're worshiping alongside the saints of all life. I mean, nobody who dies in the Lord dies, right? It's not death to die, it's death to live. And therefore, we're worshiping with Paul and Peter and Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and whoever else, right? And your great-grandmother happened to be a Christian, right? Yeah, my grandmother, yeah, whatever. Um, and you kind of see this in Revelation where you have saints looking on earth and praying down for God's uh, justice to be done, all that kind of stuff. I, th- I think it's an amazing thing to consider. Um, it helps us to kind of view the world, I think, with more open eyes. I think we don't know what this mystery will be exactly, but when Paul defines the gospel in Ephesians 3, he says that it's a mystery. It's God's wisdom hidden for the world's foundation. And what's it for? Well, it's to show off God's wisdom to the... Uh, can't remember the name of the thrones, principalities, powers, all these yeah. things in the, in the universe that we can't really see with our physical eyes, but our mind can ascend to kind of know that they exist. Um, and in our incorruptible body at the resurrection, we'll see them clearly, I think. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, he really is capturing a, a metaphysical view, right, of the world that has been handed down throughout the Christian tradition. <clears throat> we probably also lost uh, quite a bit of today, you know, when he's going to talk about how... <clears throat> You know, uh, in section eight there, when he gets into the whole hierarchy, number, and form of angels, uh, he says, it is certain that spirits lack bodily form, yet in chapter seven, he's also going to say that spirits have a real existence. And so that's an interesting kind of approach to reality, is that you can have real existence, yet you don't have to have physical form. And, uh, and then that, that, that will be helpful when it comes to our own anthropology, when it comes to our understanding of humanity, um, because we, are, we, we obviously have real existence. Um, we have uh, a spirit, um, but at the same time, we've also got bodies. And though when our bodies go into the grave and our spirits lacking a bodily form, we'll still have a real existence in that way, like angels, right? right. Um, so kind of tying into what you're saying too, like there is this, there's this other kind of realm and there's another way of really operating in that realm that we can actually engage in um, as well. And, uh, and, and, and I think we, we kind of lose sight of that. It's, you know, this whole kind of Christian Platonism that people are talking about again. You know, I think we need to recapture. Yeah. Well, I mean, when Moses climbs the mountains of Sinai, he alone goes into God's presence for 40 days and sees something there that he brings down to replicate on earth. And what does he see? Well, yeah. I mean, you know from context that it's heaven because halfway up the mountain, the, the road turns to heavenly glass. But you also know from the book of Hebrews. Yeah, I was just going to say. Tabernacle. Chapter yeah. And chapter 10 of Hebrews says that the, um, 
the, I think the dividing wall of the tabernacle that's in heaven is the flesh of Christ. Yeah. And Hebrews 11, I believe, says that Moses, in Hebrews 3, really, but Hebrews 11 says that Moses actually uh, knew Christ. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's a different topic, but I think it's, there's much more to the world than we can see with our eyes alone. Yeah. Um, what else would be helpful to jump in? I think we're, we're getting kind of through this. Uh, do we need to defend Dionysus at all, or is he kind of someone we should move <laughs> past? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that he kind of, that Calvin is going to, tackle uh that whole sort of hierarchy of angels that was so dominant in the medieval period you know aquinas holds to this uh, because he's very influenced by pseudo dionysius or sometimes referred to erroneously as dionysius the areopagite um but you know dionysius's book is still really cool to read uh on the celestial hierarchy and uh you know whatever we think about it it's at least ingenious calvin doesn't seem to think so you know, he <laughs> says uh, right at the very bottom of page 164 no one will deny that dionysius whoever he was so he's recognizing the there's a pseudonymity issue here uh, subtly and skillfully discussed many matters in his celestial hierarchy but if anyone examine it more closely he will find it is for the most most part nothing but talk yep. <laughs> so he just thinks I, what, but what he's doing here is he's showing you know like Dionysius and even his influence in the later medieval period, he's getting into this idle speculation that Calvin just doesn't want us to do. And, uh, and so he's going to say this, this is, you know, the theologian's task is not to divert the ears which chatter, but to strengthen consciences by teaching things true, sure, and profitable. Yeah. And so if, if you don't engage in speculation, you turn to scripture to find those things that are true, sure, and profitable, then that actually strengthens your faith or strengthens your conscience. So whatever yeah. coolness there is to Dionysius, Calvin doesn't care because it's not going to strengthen your faith. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. And I think, again, this goes back to what is God's word. It is for our profit, for our benefit. That's what it's there for. God could have written a 5,000-page a, a tome on anything, but what he did was to specify things that would be for our benefit towards him and salvation. Yeah. Um, so there's a purpose to scripture that is it's not just a, a gangly book of narratives and poetry and whatever else. It maybe has those elements, but it's for our benefits, for our good, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, in Paul's language. Uh, yeah, Dionysius, agree. I, I think uh, there's actually some good to him, Trinitarian theology and some stuff like that, that Kelvin... Well, even even in the idea of or, or orderliness, right? I think that, uh, you know, that there's, there's, some, there's something to be said in understanding all of reality is structured according to a certain sort of order that makes it intelligible. And, uh, and so I think that's also where that whole kind of medieval scheme that even as they inherit certain things from Aristotle in terms of how the cosmos is ordered, uh, though we know now, thank you Copernicus, that, uh, you know, that there's not this set uh, fixed expanse in the skies, but nevertheless, the fact that they wanted to locate things in an order and an order that's ultimately grounded in God, I still think is really, really appropriate and helpful. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of good, but I think he ends up responding to those in his current day, thousand years after this book was written by Dionysius, who have probably gone much further than him, more wide, maybe not much further, but just very, very interesting angels to the point that it's, it's speculation, not helpful. Yeah. Um, I think one last thing to talk about very briefly, um, and we can kind of look after that, is uh, uh, the nature of evil and the nature yeah. of evil. Um, Calvin uh, has what I would say is the standard view of, I think, virtually everyone before him. I, I don't know of an exception. 
and I've looked into this before, it's from you know, the beginning to the end. And that's basically this, uh, God created everything. Eventually, uh, Tertullian will say God created ex nihilo out of nothing, but I think that's already implied in scripture and, and, the early, and early, probably earlier people as well. And because of that, uh, everything that God created has to be good. I mean, Genesis 1 says it's good and very good at the very end of it, in the sixth day anyways. So if, if creation is good, if there's nothing else but what God created, <laughs> then everything by nature is good. And yet evil exists and Satan fell from original good. So what does that mean? And Calvin explains what everyone basically has explained in section three, uh, below halfway. And he says this, for the depravity and malice, both of man and of the devil, or the sins that arise therefrom, do not spring from nature, but rather from the corruption of nature. Later he'll talk, he'll, he'll use the word degeneration. So sin, evil, is the corruption, the rusting of what is a good piece of metal. It's the degeneration versus generation, which is kind of creation. It is becoming uncreated and, and disordered and gross. Oh man, uh, Gregory of Nyssa in his, <laughs> I mentioned again, Honest Creation of Man book, he really harps on this because God created everything to be good, but when we do evil, we lose, we become matter without form. We become yeah. and gross and milty and chaotic. and chaotic. That's right, because nature is good. God said it was good and very good even after the creation of man in Genesis 1.31. So sin can't be something God created, can't be something he caused in terms of direct involvement. It's really us not failing to be good degenerating or corrupting our nature so yeah he's doing this he's he's speaking again you know within this context of sort of like bad speculations and uh he's he's hammering right there that in that second paragraph of section three on on manny and uh you know manny is the the founder the guru uh of the manichaeans whom augustine would go but initially augustine was was kind of like affiliated with the manichaeans and then repudiates them and then writes all these books against the Manichees. And uh, the Manichees have this kind of like very famous uh, structuring of reality that's, that's very dualistic. So good and evil are both equally ultimate. And, uh, and so he's saying here, if, that's, if that were the case, that God and the devil kind of were both the ultimate principles, uh, then uh, you know, evil as in nature is something that's just always been. And so what Calvin's going to say is actually that's just not the case. Even, even the devil, uh, in terms of the kind of being he is, he's really angelic. He's fallen, but he's angelic. Even the devil, is, it's not natural to him to be evil. God didn't create him that way or he didn't exist eternally that way. Um, but that, uh, you know, in his rebellion, then he kind of like takes on this corruption of nature, just like we do in our, in our sin which is really helpful because then it shows at least for us that there's a redeemability. Uh, I think also the image of God is going to play into this, but um, the idea that you're, you're redeemable, that it's not of your essence as a human uh, to be evil or to be sinful. And uh, it's, if you want to put it in a way, like you could say it's not of the essence uh, to be evil as humans. It's more like an accidental property uh, that comes because of our lack of obedience. And an accidental is a whoopsie, but as right. <laughs> but as a part of you, that's not, that is not necessary. Yeah. Like in, in philosophy, I'll, I'll explain, you know, it's an essence, it's the essence of a ball to be round. Um, but a ball could be green, blue, or red. 
and that's its the color is its accidental property. If a ball is blue or red, it doesn't change its its the fact that it's the essence is still a ball. And so, yeah, it's an accidental quality to human nature uh, of sin because of our fallenness, but it's not essential to who we are. And so, therefore, at the same time, bigger than that, it's not essential uh, for the for the nature of all of reality to be evil or to be fallen. It's not how God created it. Uh, and so there's something else that's happened that can be undone. Yeah, that's good. Um, I want to hit on, on one last item that I just paused here that's kind of important. Quick correction. I don't know if Gregory talks about the word corruption in the context I was referring to in my brain, but that's beside the point. The other stuff I think was right. Okay, on page uh, 177, section 18, I think it's important to maybe end here because maybe it's a positive note. Look, uh, Calvin says demons are bad. They're after you. Devil's after you. Uh, but maybe the two things I can mention here is that, um, in fact, when Christ died, he conquered Satan. Yeah. There is a, a victorious element to the cross. And the victorious element of the cross is that when he rose, he destroyed death, Hebrews 2.14, the power of death anyways, in 15, and conquered Satan. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is that in the, you know, the Proto-Evangelion, the Genesis 3.15, the initial promise of salvation, Calvin says this, this is section 18, somewhere near the top um, at the end of the first paragraph. But because that promise to crush Satan's head pertains to Christ and all his members in common, I deny that believers can ever be conquered or overwhelmed by him. Awesome. Massively important because uh, I believe it's section two in his, uh, Christo- his Christ Redeemer section. I am, this is my kind of persuasion, but Calvin, I think his main metaphor of salvation is head and body incorporation into Christ. Whatever our head does, we do. And it explains so much why I think it's in Romans 16, maybe verse 20, that we're said to be crushing the head of the serpent, right? Why we, why us? (laughs) Because Christ, our head, we're his body. And by adoption, he's our brother. We are incorporated into his family, into his very life. We're dead. Our life is hidden with, uh, with God and in Christ with God. Uh, ready to be revealed to us and all that. So there's a very important thing that we don't talk about so much anymore, and that Christ's headship implies that we are his body in a very tangible, and I would use the word real way. Right. And by real, I mean that the spirit unites us to the flesh of Christ uh, in, in a spiritual, mystical sense, so that whatever he has and has done is, is uh, imputed to us. Whatever he gains is imputed to us. Whatever we have by adoption is because we are incorporated into the body of Christ and therefore he is our brother and God is our father by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I just think it ends on hope here. Calvin's going to expand on that, but yeah, you don't have to worry about demons. They may tempt you. They may do all these things, uh, but we have victory, overwhelming victory through the cross. And because we're in Christ, our head, uh, we, we don't have to worry about demons possessing us. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Uh, he mentions that as well. I don't know if that's the exact rationale, but um, he does say that you, know, you can't be demon-possessed. Therefore, God does not allow Satan to rule over the souls of believers, but gives over only the impious and unbelievers whom he deigns not to regard as members of his own flock to be governed by them. So it's, it's massively important, and there's, there's, there's so much hope. When we talk about the angelic realm, sometimes we're afraid of Satan and his demons and devils. Um, we don't have to be. Yeah, he says, in, in our head, in our head, indeed, this victory always, it's interesting, he says, always fully existed, hmm. right? So in Christ, in our head, indeed, this victory always fully existed, for the prince of the world had nothing in him. 
So no matter what Satan's trying to do, he, he's got nothing. Christ, in a way, has always been victorious. Yep. And when, when Christ went, according to Revelation 12, Christ went to heaven, and the devil had a place in heaven with, with a third of the angels. And they got into a brawl, but Michael, the archangel, was sent by Christ and dominated Satan. Satan was cast down to earth, and he's bound there now. And the reason why he rages is not because he's powerful, but in fact, because he's lost and is angry. Yeah, absolutely. When he attacks the church, yeah, he might hurt us in some physical ways, perhaps, through his, through his forces. But even if you get to the point of the worst case scenario of death, that's your victory over him. You yeah. crush him. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's not, it is not death to die. In fact, it is life and absolute victory over all evil. And that is, uh, I think, a really good message to hear. So uh, I think we can maybe end here on our... Yeah, let, let me just, let me just uh, alert uh, listeners, at least at this point in time, uh, that are going to be hearing this sooner rather than later, that uh, Michael Haken's uh, Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies is hosting a conference coming up that'll be through Zoom that's going to deal with, the, with angelology, with the whole doctrine of angels from a wide range of perspectives. So maybe we can put the link in our show notes. Yep. Sure. If you're interested in a, in a greater discussion of, of angels, um, then you're going to want to check into this conference. Uh, so that was chapter 14. Uh, next week is chapters 15 and 16, and we get to talk about free will. Uh, we all mm. love free will, and that'll be an interesting topic to kind of tease through. I haven't really read it carefully. Uh, I just kind of looked over it, but I suspect it'll be fascinating because that is a kind of a, what is it, a, a Calvinistic theme, right? Free will, predestination, all that kind of stuff. So... I'll look I mean, you know, my students, whenever they write papers, they either write on angels or they write on free will. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a perennial question, right? So yeah. uh, it's, it's very important to almost everyone. And I think that'll be, it'll be a fun topic to talk through next week. So yeah. thanks everyone for listening to Into Theology. We'll see you next week, I guess. We won't see you. You'll hear us talking next week and maybe watch us on YouTube. Uh, please, if you're, if it's your first time, feel free just to continue on. You don't need to start over Calvin's book. Just Continue with us according to the reading plan. I'll share it on social media. It's, it's all over the place. Join our Facebook group. I think it's just called Into Theology. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.